0: Welcome to Witch and Goddess. I'm your host, Patty Black. I'm a witch, a teacher, and priestess. Goddess devotion is an essential part of my craft, and many goddesses are my cohorts in magic. Each episode, we explore a different goddess, her lore, and how to connect with her energetically and magically. Welcome back, listeners. I'm excited to join you for part 2 of our mermaids and sea goddesses series. Today, we'll look at the Greek sirens, Yamaya, Mamiwata, Lamia, and Morvarin. Just a reminder that you can visit the Witch and Goddess page on Spotify and receive exclusive guided ritual meditations for just $4.99 a month. These subscribers get this exclusive content written and led by me with a new intention every month. Now, these rituals are designed to deepen and activate a variety of aspects of your spiritual, magical, and mundane life. Big hugs to my current subscribers. Your support means the world. So, the inclusion of the sirens in an episode about mermaids may surprise anyone familiar with Greek mythology. But it's their confusing identity that I'm curious about. Modern depictions and definitions of any creature called a siren almost always use the word mermaid. Also mandatory seem to be phrases like evil, murderous, bloodthirsty, and lustful. While one of the main roles of the Sirens, according to their early legends, does indeed seem to be using their beautiful voices to lure men to their deaths, classical accounts seem much less salacious than their modern appearances. To the Sirens first shalt thou come, who beguile all men, whosoever comes to them. Whoso in ignorance draws near to them and hears the Sirens' voice, he never more returns that his wife and little children may stand at his side rejoicing, but the sirens beguile him with their clear-toned song, as they sit in a meadow, and about them is a great heap of bones of moldering men, and round the bones the skin is shriveling. But do thou row past them, and anoint the ears of thy comrades with sweet wax, which thou hast needed, lest any of the rest may hear. This is probably the first ever written reference to the Greek sirens, but Homer didn't even mention their physical appearance. It would seem that their form is left completely to the reader's imagination. Or was Homer's ancient audience already familiar with creatures called sirens and didn't need the clarification? We are told they're sitting in a meadow, on an island, dead men all around. Why are mermaids on land? Maybe they didn't start as mermaids, But more on that in a moment. First, what do we know from this passage? These early sirens are already dangerous to men, but in a very feminine fashion, they charm and enchant sailors with their clear-toned song. Dangerously intoxicating and powerful songs are a hallmark of the sirens, which is a trait that seems to have been passed on to other modern mermaids. And what exactly do the sirens sing? From the Odyssey. The sirens could not fail to see our speeding vessel and began their clear singing. Famous Odysseus, draw near, and bring your ship to rest and listen to our voices. No man rose past this isle in his dark ship without hearing the honey-sweet sound from our lips. He delights in it and goes his way, a wiser man. We know all the suffering, the Argives and the Trojans endured by the gods. On the wide plains of Troy, We know everything that comes to pass on the fertile earth. Now it was said that after Odysseus and his men passed them unharmed, the sirens were distraught by a mortal man escaping their dark plans. So they threw themselves in the sea and drowned. Other sources say that this actually occurred after the Argonauts passed and Orpheus successfully outperformed them. Homer's Odyssey doesn't explicitly state the physical form of the sirens, although it has been argued that he envisioned an attractive humanoid creature. I couldn't say if there's any way to back that up. What is definite is that later in the third century BC, the Argonautica describes the sirens as women-bird hybrids, and in early Greek art, sirens were generally represented as large birds with women's heads, bird feathers, and scaly feet. And later they were described with the upper bodies of human women The legs of birds, both with and without wings. These depictions draw comparisons to the harpies, the spirits of violent winds that snatched people away from earth. They were also commonly depicted playing musical instruments, especially the lyre. In the first century AD, Ovid named the sirens as human companions of Persephone. Demeter either gifted them wings or they requested them themselves so that they could help with the search for Persephone after her abduction by Hades. We hear a slightly different version of the tale from Hyginus' Fabulae in the same period. This one says that Demeter cursed the sirens with their monstrous form for failing to prevent her daughter's abduction. Other myths say their wings were gifted from Aphrodite because the sirens wished to remain virgins. There may have been art depictions on bowls and the like of more mermaid-like sirens, as early as the 3rd century BC, but they were first mentioned in writing in the Libra Monstrorum from the early 8th century AD. The sirens were called sea girls, with bodies of maidens and scaly fish tails. But through the 13th century, multiple authors of bestiaries and monster catalogs seemed on the fence about the correct form, and included safe descriptions that included both bird and fish forms, and sometimes even dragons. It wasn't until about the 14th century that sirens settled into a mostly fish-woman form and began the journey to being seen as almost synonymous with mermaids. Of course, originating on an island and targeting sailors, sirens and the sea have always been connected. Maybe the transformation was due to confusion or convenience. Perhaps it came down to the age-old question, hot or not? Are fish-women simply more fuckable than birds? What gives classical writers? is it the feathers? It's the feathers. My current understanding, because it's ever-shifting, is that sirens are one of many, many types of spirits that have probably taken physical form at certain points throughout history. And like most spirits, they can and will take whatever form achieves their end goals. Whether to teach, frighten, or even inspire, who knows? Personally, I find the modern, bloodthirsty versions of sirens just super aspirational, I'm ready for the comments and emails, but don't you find it just a little reassuring when you see fierce female monsters? Now, there's a theory of need and purpose associated with the creation of spirits, which I also strongly relate to. In short, some people believe that gods and deities are born when humanity has a need or desire for that type of spirit or energy. Furthermore, this theory usually assumes that the most The more people believing in, envisioning, imagining, or even longing for this spirit, the stronger the spirit will be. The more they may manifest and the more they might intervene in life on earth. And because more people become aware of them through their own lens of experience and perception, this spirit will shift and adapt, taking on new traits and appearances that may better align with how their followers are experiencing them. So this is one possible reason why different people in different historic sources can have contradictory stories and descriptions like we see with mermaids and sirens. But back to the sinister sea girls. Some consistent themes of sirens. Punishment, temptation, transformation, monsters, beauty, and the fine line between the two. I don't personally work with their energy, but I can see how they would be Very helpful for magical activism, disrupting patriarchal systems, and general mayhem, if that's what you're into. I would suggest approaching with respect and offerings. If you do work with the sirens, I would love to hear about it. Yamaya is a most beloved and powerful spirit who certainly deserves an episode of her own, but for now, I'll share a little teaser of her rich lore, including her connection to mermaids. She's not just connected to the sea. She lives in the sea. She is the very spirit of the sea, and she is quite literally present in seawater. Yemaya's name, pronunciation, and spelling, physical appearance, and origin stories vary greatly between Brazil, Cuba, Haiti, and the U.S., but she is consistently a goddess of bodies of water. And motherhood with a capital M. She is the giver of life and considered the mother of all of the other Orishas. Orishas are divine beings or spirits of Yoruban and African diaspora religions. In her traditional Yoruban culture, she is the patron spirit of women, a mother, and a special protector of pregnant women. Yemaya is worshipped at almost any stream, creek, or well, and she is the patron deity of the largest Yoruban river, the Agun. Some descriptions say she has never given birth, yet raised many children, Her name has been interpreted as mother of fish children, alluding to the expansive nature of her role as nurturing mother of all living things. As an African river deity, she is often portrayed as a mermaid. Able to visit all bodies of water, her primary homes are rivers and streams. In Brazil and Cuba, she's more often worshiped as a goddess of the oceans. Her connection to the convergence of water, motherhood, and nurturing seem endless. Yemaya has even been compared to amniotic fluid and its position as shield and shelter against the outside world. According to historian and ethnographer Elizabeth Perez, many of the stories and visions we have of Yemaya today are from 19th century Cuba, when motherhood and feminine roles were greatly influenced and constrained by racial currents of the time, specifically systems of slavery. This is why we see so many parallels with the idea of surrogacy and raising children to whom she didn't actually give birth. Legends say that there's a deep rivalry between Yamaya and the goddess Oya, and the two should never share altar space. Yemaya is associated with the numbers 7 and 10, and blue and white. Her sacred items and offerings include pearls, silver, cowrie shells, conch shells, and doves. Offerings for her include molasses, coconut cakes, white flowers and roses, dishes, porcelain, earthenware bowls, white jars, and white metals and coins. She has multiple sacred days by location, including September 7th, December 8th, New Year's Eve, and February 2nd. Occasionally, you may see Yamaya and another water deity, Mamiwata, mentioned as the same spirit. But it's my understanding that they are usually considered distinct beings. Mamiwata sometimes refers to a type of male or female spirit that exists in the plural, but she's also commonly viewed as a specific singular female deity, a powerful goddess of Odon. Another mermaid-like figure, she's often shown with a woman's upper body, often nude, and the lower body of a fish or serpent. Her popular iconography is intertwined with snake charming, and she's most frequently pictured with serpents. Her skin may sometimes be depicted as chalk white, but she's not Caucasian. She's also shown as a fair-skinned black woman, usually with very long, dark hair, and carrying beautiful items like combs, mirrors, and jewelry. She is a spirit of wealth who can bring good fortune and money to her followers. Beautiful, vibrant, sexual, Mami Wata is also dangerous and unpredictable. There are tales of her followers, when swimming or in water, being taken by the goddess. She carries them to her underwater realm, where she may or may not allow them to leave. If they are released, they usually return from the water in dry clothes, with greater spiritual understanding. They're also said to enjoy more wealth and physical beauty afterwards. Like so many stories of female monsters, the Lamia was a beautiful woman who, through a series of unfortunate events, was transformed into a monstrous form. In this case, an affair with Zeus was the catalyst for her downward spiral. As you can imagine, Hera had something to say about that, and she caused the Lamia to lose her children. Some versions say by kidnapping them, others say that the Lamia killed her own children, and her despair was so great that she was transformed into the monstrous child-hunting version we may be familiar with. The Lamia is relevant to our mermaid conversation because these figures are usually described in some type of serpentine form, usually half woman, half snake. They also have a lot in common with our friends the Sirens, especially our modern understanding of Sirens. The Lamia is connected, through various myths, with the loss of sight or vision. Some accounts say Hera gouged out her eyes in jealousy. Others say that in order to deprive her of any escape from grieving her children, Hera caused the Lamia to be unable to sleep. To remedy this, Zeus gave her removable eyes and the ability to shapeshift. Now the names of two other female monsters come up often in connection with the Lamia, the Gorgo, or Gorgons, and the Empuse, both of whom are deeply connected to Hecate. In some cases, Lamia are considered synonymous with the Empuse, who seduces men for sexual gratification and then consumes them. Behold the origins of the term man-eater, because a woman boldly seeking casual sex is just as shocking as murder and feasting on flesh. Let's change pace. We will finish our mermaid series with a good old-fashioned tale of love and romance. The Mermaid of Zenor is a popular Cornish folktale. Long ago, near the village of Zenor, a mermaid named Morverin lived in the Cove of Pendor. Morverin was said to disguise her mermaid form and visit the village church every Sunday, drawn by the sounds of the choir singing. One voice in particular, that of local man Matthew Tuella, captivated her completely. She continued to attend church, just to admire Matthew's singing and handsome features. Eventually, Matthew came to love Morvrin as well, and she felt compelled to admit to him that she could not stay on land. As she dove into the ocean, Matthew followed her willingly, and according to the tale, the two were never seen on dry land again. The story of Matthew and Morvrin is still just as popular in Zenor today, where some say that on a calm night you might hear Matthew singing of his love for Morvrin. Interestingly, in a church in Zenor is a dark, wooden pew said to be over 600 years old. On one end is a large and detailed carving of a mermaid it's appropriately called The Mermaid Chair. Google it for yourself and see if you find yourself hoping that it's more than just a folk tale. Morvrin's tale has inspired paintings, poetry, books, and countless generations. And while she's not a goddess, her story is an interesting twist on classic mermaid and siren themes. In this one, the mermaid is lured to land by the man's enchanting voice. And in A Turn on the Little Mermaid Formula, It is Matthew who abandons his life on land to follow Morvrin into the sea. After all of this, I find myself even more enthralled with mermaids of all kinds. Whether you find them frightening or fascinating, there's no denying they hold a deep and timeless power over the human imagination. Perhaps it's their elusive nature that captures us. Are they benevolent or menacing, attractive or grotesque? I would love to know if mermaids feature in your spiritual or magical practice, and if so, how? You can message me at Witch and Goddess Pod on Instagram, leave a recorded message for me on Spotify for podcasters, or email me at witchandgoddesspod at gmail.com. Visit me at blackbirdmagic.com, that's magic with a C-K, to join my free community for witches and to find out about my courses and mentorship. Sources for this episode are an article on the website Writing in Margins called Fish or Fowl, How Did Sirens Become Mermaids, Nobody's Mammy, Yamaya as Fierce Foremother in Afro-Cuban Religions by Elizabeth Perez, The New Book of Goddesses and Heroines by Patricia Monaghan, Encyclopedia of Spirits by Judica Illis, and multiple Wikipedia articles.